Hey listeners, Emmy Duncan here, Managing Editor and Director of Partnerships at N Magazine. Thanks for tuning in. We have a fantastic conversation ahead for you today with journalist and author David Gregory. But before we turn to the interview, I'd like to take a moment to thank one of our Nantucket Sound sponsors, Serena and Lily. Not all art belongs on a wall. Lay the foundation for a stylish room with a beautiful rug from Serena and Lily. From colorful flat weaves and casual stripes to hand-knotted wool and beachy naturals, they bring the finest craftsmanship and artistry to every rug. Want to take it outside? They have an amazing selection of performance rugs that look equally great from the dining room to the deck. It'll change the way you see your space. Shop the collection at serenaandlily.com or visit a design shop near you. And now, here's our host, Rob Cacuso. Hi friends, Rob Cacuso here, and you're listening to another episode of Nantucket Sound. There is no shortage of political opinions on the island, but very few hold the weight of summer resident David Gregory. A political analyst on CNN, Gregory has become a steady voice in what can otherwise be a volatile conversation on cable news. Dave Gregory came into the N Magazine studio to discuss the state of the news, today's political landscape, and what stories we should keep our eyes on today. Given how fast the news breaks these days, I should note that this conversation was recorded a couple weeks ago. But still, the topics that David Gregory breaks down for us are no less relevant today. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Gregory. David Gregory, thank you so much for being here, my friend. My pleasure. It's great to see you. Happy summer. Thank you so much. It's fully here now, that's for sure. And so is, and all the people are here, too. <laughs> I know. This year is, I mean, it's unbelievable. Have you ever seen a season that's been like this much pressure on the island? I, I haven't. And I was actually, I was a little worried that it was going to be kind of the roaring 20s around here. And, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of strain on the island. I mean, I think about the people who are working so hard, and I think about, you know, all of our shops and, and our essential services who are really taxed and uh, and the staffing challenges. But I mean, more than anything, I still think about, you know, all the people we rely on, all of our friends and folks who make the island go, who struggle to find a place to live in the yeah. summer. It's this ongoing problem. So it, that's, that's far more important than, you know, how much traffic we face. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody, you know, makes allowances in the summer to figure out how to manage it but you know i just think i think the hospital's done a great job you know with vaccinations so keeping people healthy keeping people just aware of kind of the vibe of the island and to be good to each other you know to let let people go ahead you know since there's no traffic lights you know stuff like that you don't want to lose and i think that part uh i hope is still there i i still feel that and you know we all just try to get along with the fact that you know it's a lot a lot of a lot, people and a right. lot a lot of stuff going on but you know just get some good weather and yeah we're get all to the smiling. beach yeah, yeah exactly no but i think you're right i mean the, the housing issue is going to be the i think the big crux and hopefully we can really start putting our thinking caps on to address that because you know the folks that make this place run I and mean, we we need places for them to live and yeah 100 percent. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting dynamic i'm not Someone smarter than me will come up with the right answer, hopefully. Um, but speaking of Nantucket, give us the background of your history here, because if we all know you from the Dreamland, we've seen you post the pop. So give us some. Yeah. So, so my wife, uh, Beth and I were married here back in 2000 at the summer house. Um, and I had come for the first time with Beth, um, in 1997. 
Uh, Beth has been coming here for most of her life. She came here as a kid. She grew up in Connecticut. You know, I'm just a kid from Los Angeles and uh, I first came to visit and I was like, right on. Like, you know, this will work just fine. I love the place immediately as I think anybody does who comes here. And, um, you know, I just love being part of the community. I mean, you know, we live in Washington, D.C. and there's obviously a lot of Washingtonians here, a lot of New Yorkers here, not just folks from Mass and around the country, but, you know, just a great sense of community here. And it's fun to be part of a a small town of, you know, of, of knowing people who are year round and then obviously knowing summer residents as well. So, yeah, that's when I started coming here. And, you know, I was with NBC News at the time and there were a lot of NBC people here, obviously Tim Russert and Bob and Suzanne Wright and Jack Welch, of course, uh, and others who would come up and you know, and I started you know, getting involved where where people wanted me to be involved, and that's that's always been a lot of fun. And uh, you've got you and Beth have three children. Yeah, what's uh, Nantucket lifestyle like for you? What are the things that kind of go into your day, and how often are you here? I mean, you- so we're here, we're here um, really the whole summer. You know, trying and aspiring to spend more time than that. We're here around Thanksgiving. I want to spend even more time at Thanksgiving. You know, the kids love it. I mean, we've been. You know, since they were little, going to going to Surfside Beach, and now we live over in Surfside. So um, we're down at Stones and Fishermen, and, and uh, you know, and we love that. And the kids have been working. You know, um, our kids are all working. We actually have our three kids are working at Bar Yoshi. You know, nice, Terry yeah. over there. It's a great place. They've expanded. They've done an outstanding job. So we've got um, our three kids, and then our our nieces and a nephew. So we have six employees total. <laughs> And they're, at, at Bar Yoshi. Are at Bar Yoshi. <laughs> so I told them, like, guys, you know, if, if there's any issues over there, you can unionize very quickly. <laughs> but they love them because, you know, we, 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 they're all staying at our house. So that solves that problem. And they're, and it's good, it's good to come up here and to work and you learn a lot. And we feel strongly about that. So yeah, we do that. And, you know, the kids are, are working out and going to the beach and on their bikes. I've been doing a lot more biking in the last couple of years in the moors. Like road, oh, oh, yeah, uh, trail like riding. Trail, yeah, yeah. so it's just it's an amazing, amazing part of the island. Yeah, the and single track here is such an untapped secret. I know. You know I don't think we should talk about it anymore. But yeah. actually, people who know, of course, really know. You know, and there's lots of people who, um, you know, it's just an interesting part of the island. Like, you know, who actually knows the moors and who doesn't, you know, right. and obviously people who are year round who maybe grew up here, they really know all the ins and outs, whether you're a teenager wanting to have fun or whether you want to do some single track riding. But it's such a beautiful part of the island. And I, I think um, one of the things that I love most is that so much of the island, we talk about how crazy it is and all the rest. And I get that, but it's also so protected. And thank God, I mean, you know, the fact that that people have the foresight to conserve the land the way that they did allows all of us to appreciate what it has to offer. Yeah, you're 100% right. I think that those single tracks is one of the most dramatic ways to see the conservation land here because you drive by it, you drive by the Serengeti on, you know, Milestone Road and you just kind of see it and it's stunning. But then to actually explore it and realize how vast it is. Yeah. I mean, it's Do you yeah. get it? Do you get out? I do. Yeah. In fact, our director Kit and I we 
get out quite a bit. Not as much now that I have a three-year-old, but I Well, I there's did. that. Yeah. Well, you guys have to take me out because I still get lost. Or there's a few trails that are a little aggressive for me. So I have to uh, – I've gone out with a couple of guys who are really experts. And I'm like, you know, dude, you got to slow this down. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. I, I also started playing golf kind of obsessively. So I don't want to hurt myself for golf. So Now, how are, how are you at golf? Are you- I mean, I'm getting better. I started five months ago and I'm just super into it. I've kind of lost my mind. And um, so, you know, I've been playing around. My Comet is, is great. That's obviously obviously a you know a great resource here and uh and i've played at some of the other the other clubs as well with friends um but yeah it's pretty pretty vibrant on the island you just got to deal with the i've never thought so much about fescue <laughs> and i've never come to dislike fescue as much as i do now it's funny i was playing yesterday it was a sight to see uh, <laughs> i'm still working myself i've had the club but I, in fact i had this old bag and i was hauling it around and uh someone said that 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 bag is in perfect condition. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's been out like five times. Yeah, right, so. right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about career stuff. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the news, cable news. We're in the post-Trump era right now. What does cable news look like? And I mean, the viewership is obviously taking a little bit of a hit from you know, going from this this time period of breaking, breaking, breaking to something what I would call a little bit more um, placid. Let's just say yeah. that. Um what are the conversations happening within the industry about that kind of change of pace? So I think it's really interesting. The the news landscape in general, but cable news in particular, and there's been a huge migration in the news business to cable news as kind of the epicenter of news. So the ubiquity of news really tracks where you can get your news all the time, right? Which is social media, which is not really a news source, but it's an information source and it's an exchange of ideas. So the democratization of information, the idea that you don't need me to tell you what's going on. You can find out from other people, whether it's your friends, your community, people in the know or, or without any filter that has driven people to social media. It's not a source of information. I think it's a highly toxic, you know, wasteland, frankly. And not uh, a great exchange of ideas. It's a place to for hatred. Um, cable news really exists on the idea of one big story. When it started, the idea was, oh well, it can, you know, we'll be able to do more depth on all these things that we don't normally talk about, and all the stuff that's in your reporter's notebook that you never used. Well, that's what you can put on the air. That's BS. The truth is. It's a place to compound coverage of one big story. And that's why Trump was so compelling is people who saw him as a threat couldn't keep their eyes off of him. And therefore, the the media couldn't keep their eyes off of him because he never, you know, I covered 9-11. And that was such a transformative story for the country. But you know what? People tired of it. You can only keep your attention so long to one story. And people had fatigue. And so people moved on. And then we had the Iraq war was an extension of that. But all of that, people migrated away from that. And nobody really migrated away from Trump. And I thought it brought out really bad things in a lot of media and, uh, and citizens. But what's happened is, in the absence of that, you're right. Political life is a little bit more placid in terms of what the government is currently doing. Political life is still not really vibrant. It's still pretty toxic and pretty divided. Um, but cable news is trying to figure out, okay, what's the narrative that we're driving that is compelling enough for people to keep coming back? And I don't think they've figured that out yet. Do you have a thought on what, like, are there stories that you keep an eye on? Are there kind of threads that you think 
should get more attention? Well, it's more that it would be great if politics weren't the through line through everything. You know, to have a discussion about race, justice, and equity in this country, um, I think is not properly done in the media because it's so politicized and it's so it's toxic and it's not an easy conversation to have. We're seeing this with the virus. You know, science is not an easy conversation to discuss, even though it's an objective story. Um, so I, I just think the the news organizations have built themselves on the idea that politics is the centerpiece that you radiate around because most people are animated by that. And I think that has morphed into not a question of what you believe government ought to do, which is really at the root of politics, which is what should government do and what shouldn't it do? What are the limits of its, of its capacity? Two, politics is a measurement of who you are, what kind of person you are. That's the litmus test. And that's, I think, pretty unfortunate because it's a little too limiting. You know, we've got to be able to hear people. We've got to be able to understand people. And we don't really do that in this political environment. It's, I mean, politics has always been about power and the acquisition of power and the use of power. But sometimes it comes into really sharp relief. And it goes back to your point about the development of the modern media is the development away from mass audience. We're doing this podcast, you know, and Nantucket Magazine is trying to reach like a broader uh, audience, but you're, it's still a little bit more of a niche audience. Um, and that's true of, you know, most media organizations that want to kind of find their community that they can monetize as opposed to having the broadest possible reach, which was an old, an old model when you didn't have this many choices. Right. And I, I, I know that you don't think we're going to go back to the days of Edward R. Morrow and um, the Walter, Walter Cronkite type of coverage. But do you think we're going to continue to have the networks be on polar opposites? I mean, you might think that we're not on polar opposites. No, but- well, we are. I mean, it's just, it's community driven and right. kind of ideologically driven. So, you know, and by the way, that those days that you're talking about were incredibly limiting as well. I mean, you know, the idea of returning to a time when mostly white men, um, you know, in in New York City, decided what was newsworthy you know people may think oh that was a time when all the news was fair and honest like no actually it wasn't there were huge gaps that were missing um you know go back to the coverage in the 50s what they covered about feminism nobody did they wouldn't even publish betty for dan's articles about um what was happening among women in this country the ferment that was going on in the 1950s so there are huge gaps that we can recognize now and the limitations of that and the lack of diversity the lack of diversity, the lack of, of geographic diversity, of socioeconomic diversity, uh, and racial diversity, and uh, uh, gender diversity. So th- that part of the news was incredibly limited. What people liked about it was the idea that you had these authority figures who, were, who had a lot of power and influence. And now it feels so diffuse. And it is diffuse. You know, I I consume a lot of news and I know where to go get it. And I know a lot of the people who are doing it. And my thing is, you should know where people are coming from. I read the New York Times. I know where the New York Times is coming from. And I don't always agree with it. I When I read the Wall Street Journal, I read their news coverage. I know that that's different than their op-ed page or their editorial page. I know where they're coming from. I agree with some things. I disagree with others. But I, I'm not surprised 
So people say, well, where do you get your news? I'm like, well, I get it all kinds of places, but I know where it's coming from. And there's an extra onus on citizens, I think, to understand the sources of their information, to test it and to weigh it. And that's a little harder than it used to be because someone who might be really credible to you may be less credible to me. You know, in the 60s, there was a tradition of kind of swashbuckling advocacy journalism, particularly around the Vietnam War. Well, that was considered very leftist journalism at the time. You know, David Halberstam, Neil Sheehan, a lot of that writing at the time, you know, the administration complained about it. Um, But we see it now as, you know, highly authoritative work that was done in investigative journalism. So there is some of that good work done now. But the last point I'll make on this is that particularly about cable news, I think people make the mistake of watching cable news and thinking, oh, okay, well, this is on the level. You know, I'm here to learn. Like, well, it's not really on the level. That's the point. There's there's an agenda. There's a narrative that's being driven oftentimes. And that's not, I'm not saying this about all cable media. I mean, I'm with CNN. I think CNN does an excellent job. And I also think there's a lot of point of view there. Um, But it doesn't mean that it's not credible. You have to evaluate what's coming at you and understand, okay, where is this person coming from? And this may not be just a straight news source here uh, in terms of what I'm learning at a particular time. I guess the scary thing is that there's also a tremendous amount of skepticism. And I mean, you look at January 6th, you look at the, you know, the denial after the election, there's a whole group of people that are basically abandoning fact. Right. And how do we address that? How do we, I mean, is there a way to de-radicalize that group of Americans who are, they're looking at the, the bright parts of the world right. and they're, and they're, they're plugging into a new source that, you know, is not, not typically rooted in fact. Right. How do we even address that? And is it, is it a p- epidemic that's only going to continue to get worse as we move forward here? We have a real problem in kind of coming to agreement about what the facts are. And again, I think our news landscape contributes to that because there's a lot more argument. And, you know, there's reasons why people are skeptical about the news media. Um, and there are a lot of mistakes that are made or there's just, like I said, there's, there's more agenda and a lot more heat than there is light. I mean, the answer to your question is certainly major, what I would call major mainstream news organizations have a responsibility to pursue independence and to try to nail down the, the, the truth, you know, as we know it and as we can ascertain it. And I think if you're in the business of making a lot of judgments, then that gets in the way of that. Um, but anybody who tries to position themselves as, as an independent news source also gets criticized. You know, and I saw, I've seen that in my, my career as well. There's a tremendous amount of misinformation you know, the, the social media companies, I think, have a lot to do with that because they still can't decide what they are and how they're going to police their content. And are they censoring people, which they are censoring people um, because they haven't committed to the idea of rules for their community. They're not bound by free speech guidelines. That's not what the Constitution says. Facebook has, you know, is not bound by, by what the Constitution says. They're a private business. But they also hold themselves up as being something that they're not. You know, and so they got to decide, you know, and they're and I guess they're they're trying to figure that out. There's a lot more connective tissue is the point for people, like you say, have been radicalized. It's, you know, people have always believed all kinds of different things, right. but they have a way to connect a little bit more. And that can be very dangerous. Then, yeah, that's my question is 
what's at what's at um, risk right now? Like what with that whole group of folks that I don't think we have a full grasp of how many are out there. Yeah. Um, how do we even address that as a country? Look, I think. Um Hey guys, we're going to take a quick little break from our conversation with David Gregory and thank one of our favorite sponsors, Fiduciary Trust International. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage their wealth and all the complexities that come with it across generations. But if you also care about pursuing sustainable investing goals, you want to know about the values-based approach that makes Fiduciary Trust International stand out among other investment firms. It's a process they use to look at environmental, social, and governance factors to help you not only screen out negatives, but capitalize on opportunities. So if you're looking to align your wealth with your values, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation with David Gregory. We have to understand that I don't think this is that new of a phenomenon. You know, during the Oklahoma City bombings in the 90s, uh, there was a lot of conspiracy theories around the idea that there was more than one you know, uh, more than two people responsible for it, that there was a John Doe too. I mean, in the age of social media, that would have taken on all kinds of levels of conspiracy, and it did in the 90s. You know, you know full disclosure, my wife, um, Beth Wilkinson, prosecuted, Remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. prosecuted McVeigh and Nichols, but I was a journalist covering that case at the time as well. And the ability to connect kind of misinformed conspiracy views was not what it is today. So, I mean, I just think you have to stand up to that. I think January 6th was a phenomenon that was not just exacerbated by, but uniquely created by the president of the United States, who had the ability to galvanize people and then give them instructions. And, you know, history will teach, we'll learn a little bit more. I mean, there's a lot of accounts that are being published now about what he was trying to do and people are ascribing motives. Look, I think part of this was that he thought so much of this was just theater Right. That he was surprised at some of the outcomes and shame on him. You know, you have to you have to respect the office of the presidency and understand its power. And I don't think Donald Trump cared and showed it the disrespect uh, that he did. And that was one of the results. So things like that. Yeah. I mean, I worry about those things happening. And I think um, media plays a role in trying to tamp that down. Citizens play a role in and not going around accusing people all the time of, of being bigots and you know, ignorance and trying to hear people, you know, we gotta, we gotta listen to people where they come from. You know, it's so many liberals are horrified at the fact that Donald Trump happened. Well, you have to, you have to understand why he happened and what happened in our politics that would give rise to a Donald Trump to actually become the elected president of the United States. Um, Now, the same population also rejected him four years later. So there's a lot of work to be done. And it is, it's a, I think the scariest part of the time is what Hannah Arendt was so concerned about with the rise of totalitarianism, which is the mainstreaming of misinformation and lies to the point where you can't really ever, you can't agree on what basic facts are um, and that the, the population ultimately kind of loses its way. I don't feel that way about our country, by the way, and I don't like com- you know comparisons to Nazi Germany. I didn't like him when President Trump was in office. I think the only thing you ought to compare to Nazi Germany is Nazi Germany, right. <laughs> and we should right. leave it at that. But right. but but the point that Aaron was making was about 
in, in misinformation. Do you think that uh, given the behavior of the Republican Party at this point, with many leaders still kowtowing to, to Trump, that barring any legal you know, situation that he may get into in the next coming years, that he would have a legitimate opportunity to run again and be elected? Yes, but I mean, so first of all, the legal piece of it's very big. He faces a lot of potential litigation, some civil, and he, you know, he could be charged criminally. I mean, his, uh, his accountant and his operation uh, in the Trump organization, you know, potentially who's facing indictment, um, he could flip, you know, on, on Trump. So there's a lot to wait for there. My hunch is Trump doesn't want to run again. Really? Uh, I just think, you know, I'm not, Yes, there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of insecurity, and we'll see. I think what he wants is to be what he is now, which is the kingmaker. And if he's if he's for sure out of the game and he tells people that, then he loses some of that luster. As long as he's a threat to run again, objectively, if you just if you look at the polling and you look at the party, all roads lead through him. And there might be people who take him on. I think though, I think the Republican, I mean, you have to separate. Members of Congress and the House leadership in Congress, they're trying to raise money and they're trying to retake the House. And they, that's not a national audience. So they have districts that are heavily Trump districts where it doesn't make sense for them to run afoul of him and take him on. They would rather just like try to compartmentalize January 6th and kind of move on from it and have him help with the fundraising and just generally support them. I, I think... Republicans would are happy to move away from Trump himself, but certainly want to hang on to his supporters. So right. how, how do you do that? I mean, one of the ways I think they do it is, you know, right now, Biden is president and there's a very strong economy and we, we're dealing with the, the Delta variant. But generally, the post-COVID response is going well and the virus is, by and large, going away. Um, because of, of the number of, of vaccinated people in the country and the cases remaining low. There's a lot of exceptions to that as the variant, you know, uh, spikes cases in certain places. So, if, you know, if you're Biden, you know, you're in pretty good position. But what the right can do is attack liberals, can attack the kind of the woke left, can attack cancel culture. In other words, really bring up the cultural issues that galvanize voters and that even a lot of Democrats make a lot of Democrats uncomfortable with the, Repub with the Democratic Party. And when you have a guy like Biden, who I don't know could have been elected if it weren't for Trump, you know, he's certainly not the face of the future of the Democratic Party. There's a lot of ferment there going on on the left, and the right wants to try to take advantage of that because it's much better than having people look at their own house, which is completely in disorder. I mean, who is a Republican today? Right, yeah, right. What happened to conservatives? Uh, what is a Trump Republican anyway? Right. I mean, I, I, I would have a hard time defining what that is, other than kind of cultural definitions. Uh, who would you see jockeying for leadership, assuming Trump was out? I mean, obviously, this is way down the road, but. So I think uh, one person I'm very interested in watching, um, well, Nikki Haley is one. She served in the Straight Trump up. administration, former governor of South Carolina. There's diversity there as an Indian American uh, uh, and a woman. So I think she has, certainly, she's positioning herself right. to run. I think Governor DeSantis in Florida is very compelling. And I think he's compelling because he has a lot of those Trump attributes that those people like. And I think his position on the virus, you know, I think we're going to, we'll, there'll be a lot of debates about whether Florida did it right or not. You look at the mortality rate in Florida. Yeah, they had a lot of cases, but they didn't close the schools. They opened up early. 
Are they any worse off than California, my home state, where they had, you know, draconian lockdowns and they still have such high caseloads and now they have to go back to mass? I mean, I think the insistence on keeping kids in school was very important. And I think that generally speaking, you know, the Democrats made a lot of mistakes around schools. You know, if they told us to follow the science, once the scientists concluded there was not a threat of transmissibility among students, Democrats should have reacted and get these kids back into schools, but, but they didn't by and large. And that's, 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 um, and I bring this up because I think that's a vulnerability and a potential strength for somebody like a DeSantis. So those are two people at the moment that stand out. Obviously, Mike Pence is someone as vice president, but he's got a very complicated road to try to figure <laughs> out, you know, um, left for, you know, almost dead, literally by the president and the Capitol on January 6th and a conservative who I thought twisted himself up into knots and really compromised himself as somebody who's known him and, and interviewed over the years as a conservative, um, you know, during the Trump years. So he'll have to figure that out. How would you assess Biden's performance based upon what he was running on? And You know, I think he's, I think he's uh, probably the, the best thing you can say about him is that he's been very disciplined, which he, and he's not a very disciplined politician right. in the sense that, you know, Ron Klain, who my wife and I have known for years and who I've covered for years, is a very strong chief of staff and a very disciplined chief of staff and has kept Biden very much on message. Look, it's a strong economy. You know, the virus response has been strong. We'll, we'll see what he's able to do on infrastructure, taxes and budget. Uh, he is certainly at the very least tact left. Um, if not acceded to large parts of the liberal agenda. Um, and depending on how that goes, I think will determine, you know, how he's viewed. Largely, as it is for most cases, it's going to be the, the economy. The economy and the extent to which that any, you know, I mean, you didn't ask me specifically about re-election, but generally his performance is, is got to be about, um, has got to be about the economy um, and, and getting rid of this virus. And I don't know that voters think about this as much, but he's certainly got a big job to do a kind of reorienting the United States and the rest of the world. And that's, that's something, you know, you asked before, I think that's a very interesting thing that we don't talk about enough, which is what is America in the world in 2021? We've gone through in our immediate history, tremendous uh, cyclical change around the projection of American power post 9-11 to a kind of a retrenchment uh, and then a further retrenchment under President Trump. And now figuring out what does world leadership look like and why does that matter? Not only because we can get drawn into certain conflicts, but because we think about resources like oil, we think about climate. Where is the United States in the rest of the world? I think that's something that Biden is thinking a lot about and will try to uh, redefine. Do you think he, he's on the road to redeeming the reputation of the United States, especially amongst our allies? Or? I think some of that is superficial. You know, I think our allies um, are looking at American politics and are, are scrutinizing it the way you and I are, which is trying to figure out, well, what is it? What, what can they do over there? You know, a society has got to be able to have a political system that's commensurate to the challenges that we face. And if we're just so busy arguing with each other and tearing each other apart, then, then government can't accomplish what it's good at. And government only government can do certain things, and there's plenty of things that government shouldn't be involved in. But the longer we spend kind of, you know, involved in cultural disputes or tearing each other down, we don't get to the bigger business of, um, 
how do we how do we attack climate change uh, as a government, for example, um, and and not just the federal government, but state and local as well? What changes do you make? So, yeah, are the leaders of uh, Germany, for example, or the European community, are they happy that they're having regular NATO meetings again? Sure. But NATO's got bigger fish to fry, which is what do they do about, you know, Russia's expansion, you know, in the Crimea and Ukraine? We're not going to go to war with Russia. And then you have cyber. You know, what's, what are the rules of the road for cyber? How is that conflict going to be waged into the future? Europeans, leaders in the Middle East, leaders in China and in South Asia, like in India, they're looking at the America, American government and wondering where does it actually have meaningful commitments that we'll, we'll follow through on? When will we use force? What are we willing to fight for and die for? And is our leadership so fluid now that we really can't count on much continuity? And I think that's the biggest issue. And I don't think that question has been answered. I mean, how could you? We're sitting around here wondering if Trump might come back in 2024. He very well might. He very well might. And if that's the case, his, what he argued on the world stage was very compelling to a lot of people and not necessarily 100% wrong in my judgment. He was certainly, you know, my friend Kara Swisher, you know, often talks about how he was directionally accurate on China. The question is how he actually dealt with China. Um, was that the right thing? But, you know, look, do Biden and Trump disagree about Afghanistan? Not really. Right. I mean, Biden... You know, it's like we're getting the hell out of there. And you got General Petraeus and others saying there's going to be a huge civil war. So we've seen all of this before. And that's why I say there's real questions about what America stands for in the rest of the world that is being worked on. What do you fear most for the future of the country? I think um, rendering our political system uh, inoperable, inability to provide meaningful solutions to problems. And I think kind of the inability to see each other, that there's a kind of break or a tear in the social fabric that won't be repaired soon. You know, I fear that. And I, and I also fear inequality in the country to the extent that, you know, there's the potential for violence and tremendous disunity, whether it's around wages or the accumulation of wealth and the ability to kind of silo ourselves so we don't really have to interact with each other. You know, it's the absence of community. You know, the smaller community you live in, the more you're engaged in, you know, an I and thou relationship, you know, as Martin Buber wrote about, which is uh, what happens to you matters to me and vice versa. And I just think, you know, kind of come full circle to Nantucket, you know, this is a place that's under a lot of strain and people have different views about development and resources and summer residents like me and all the rest. Uh, I accept all that. And, uh, but you have to have some commitment to that we're in this together and how do we look after each other? And I think that, you know, this island does a really good job of that. And, and that's why what happens in our local communities doesn't get enough attention and matters more than what's happening writ large on the, on the, on the world stage. Because while I have certain fears, I also really believe in America and I believe in our government. You know, I, I try to stand up to people who say, oh, my gosh, have you ever seen something like this before? Like, uh, no, maybe not in my lifetime, but I read a lot of history and I can tell you this has happened many times before and we've come through it. Our institutions are very strong. You know, was January 6th an attack on democracy? I believe it was. I think it was an attack on a democratic process. But you know what? It was horrible that there was loss of life, but we withstood that. 
So I have a lot of confidence in what our institutions can do, but I think we just got to go back to, you know, thinking about each other, being good to each other, respecting each other, respecting difference, trying to hear each other. Um, I mean, it may sound a little trite, but I think it can go a long way. I think you're absolutely right. David, really appreciate your time. Yeah, Thank my you pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been great. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Hi, guys. Rob Cacuzzo again. I just want to hit you with some quick closing notes before we let you off for your day. I want to thank the folks that make this podcast possible, beginning with our publisher, Bruce Persley. I want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our director, Kit Noble, our editor, D. White, our sound engineer, Samantha Steele, and I want to thank the entire N Magazine team who make this podcast what it is. Nantucket Sound is released every 10 days, so please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or by logging on to www.nantucketpodcast.com. I'm Rob Cacuso. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you again on the next episode of Nantucket Sound.